This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, June 21st. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Bluegrass Debrief focuses on evacuations, Mountain Village Hotel inches towards approval, new documentary explores the Dolores River, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, a small wildfire outside of Ophir is fully contained. On Tuesday, first responders responded to a 50-foot by 100-foot wildfire on private property about one-third of a mile up from the town of Ophir on Ophir Pass. Telluride Fire Protection District personnel, Division of Fire Prevention and Control, and the U.S. Forest Service all responded. No structures were threatened from the fire and no individuals were harmed. On Wednesday, crews worked to extinguish a few remaining hotspots. Officials say the fire will be fully out in the next two to three days. If you ask organizers and Telluride Town staff, the 50th Bluegrass Festival went very smoothly. Planet Bluegrass staff and the town of Telluride met on Tuesday for a debrief of the weekend. According to Planet Bluegrass, the festival sold out at 12,000 people, but Town Park didn't see that many festivarians throughout the weekend. 10,801 attended the festival on Thursday, Friday was 9,302, Saturday saw 11,368 and 11,009 on Sunday. Camping went smoothly, as did the barricade on the spur. The medical tent saw festivarians facing the cold on Thursday and Friday and heat on Saturday and Sunday. The wastewater treatment plant chugged along. But of course, a major point of conversation at the debrief was weather and evacuations. Telluride Chief Marshal Josh Comp spoke with KOTO News after the debrief. He says each year they pay close attention to the weather. This year we were able to bring in a meteorologist from the National Weather Service that we actually had on site with us throughout the entire event, which was a huge help to our command staff and emergency management team. Comp says they were tracking weather coming up from Arizona starting Thursday night into Friday. As the day progressed, the weather slowly started getting worse and worse. Um, the first evacuation we were monitoring some storms that are out by Ofer, and uh, we saw a handful of lightning strikes in that region, and that kind of triggered the initial evacuation. The second evacuation occurred after a storm cell popped up directly over Telluride, with three lightning ground strikes occurring near Town Park. Comp says over the past several months, the town's emergency team came up with a matrix of what would trigger certain action. The first event is if we saw a storm that was significant, having lightning strikes about 15 miles out, we were going to get all the powers to be kind of in a room, start monitoring the weather a little more closely. And that way, if we had to make an evacuation, we had everybody there um, that we can communicate that to and kind of get the ball rolling quicker. He says evacuation would come if there were lightning strikes within eight miles of the festival grounds. It's not necessarily a lightning strike anywhere within that eight-mile radius. So, for example, during, I want to say Jeff, the, the weather guy, as he referred to himself as, on Friday between 12 and, I think, 8 o'clock, there was anywhere from 80 to 100 lightning strikes within that eight-mile radius. However, there was a significant portion of those were either to our west or to our north and didn't pose a serious threat to the festival at all. So we kind of kept the festival going at that point. The first evacuation came, Comp says, when there was lightning in the Ofer area coming towards Telluride. It was kind of up in the air whether or not it could either strengthen or weaken, um, obviously erring on the side of caution with that many people in the festival and knowing how long it takes us to evacuate the park. Um, we erred on the side of caution and evacuated the park. Com says the first evacuation went well. They got the park cleared within 17 minutes. The second evacuation 
was a little more difficult. There was some some hiccups with the hail. People didn't want to leave their tents or their their areas of comfort because of the hail. Um, you know, like we explained to everybody, it wasn't the hail we were concerned about. It was the lightning that was falling, and we needed people to evac. So I think that was the big bigger issue the second time around. I mean, the longer people wait to evac, whether or not they're waiting to see if the storm passes or maybe we're not going to find them in their tent. There were people that were trying to hide from us in their tents. Um, but the longer that they delay it, it puts themselves at risk, but also puts everybody else at risk. It, it exposes our staff of everybody that's out there from the fire department. There's members of public works, the marshal's department that were trying to evac the field. So the longer we have to stay out there, the more uh, in danger they're making everybody else. And in cases with lightning, Comp says every minute counts. We cleared the field probably around 6.35, 6.37, and then that significant lightning strike that happened in town was about 6.42. Outside of evacuation-related issues, Chief Comp says the Marshals Department had 166 townwide calls from Wednesday to Sunday. Law enforcement walked 13 people off Town Park property, and there were seven missing people at the festival. Comp says most of them were children, and they were reunited with their families. Approval on a new hotel in Mountain Village is slowly inching towards the finish line. The proposed hotel would sit on a lot just under one acre, next to the Sharana and Westamere buildings on Mountain Village Boulevard. The project plans for 50 hotel rooms, 20 condos, and 31 lodge units. The development also plans for 18 dorm-style employee housing units with two employee apartments. There would be retail, fine dining, a bar, a market, and a conference center wedding space. Luxury hotel brand Six Senses has shared their intent to operate the hotel. Mountain Village Town Council has been discussing the project for over a year. Over that time, there have been a number of contentious conversations between town staff, town council, and developers. With concerns regarding mass and scale, parking, trash, snow melt, and other public benefits. Amy Ward, Community Development Director for Mountain Village, says after months and months, the application is in a better place. We were directed to work with the applicant over the last couple of months. Um, the applicant has done a great job of stepping up to the table and answering a lot of questions. Um, the application at this point, I feel, is in a complete place where we can where we can review it here today. Bill Kuriavis with the development team notes that better place comes from council advice. The project team needed to listen to staff and frankly let them help us make this project work. Um, that's what we did over the last several months. And I hope you'll agree, even after just reviewing the packet and the staff report, that uh, what we're here for today is really a very different conversation than uh, was had in, in March and even in January as well. Avni Patel, also with the development team, adds their commitment to the town of Mountain Village. I do want to emphasize how committed we as a team are and as an ownership are to this town and this community and this project. Um, we own the land. The ownership team owns the land at Lot 109R. We are, Our development team is currently developing homes in this town. And we want to, you know, we want to be a long-term committed partner to this town. We've already been supporting different charities and are a member of the Telluride Arts Foundation. And we hope that after this approval, we are looking forward to having Six Senses team um, with our project do more with this community. Still, according to Michelle Haynes, assistant town manager for Mountain Village, there are some concerns, including the hotel covenant. The covenant was not in your packet. It could be in your packet. But just working through some of those last details and making sure 
that that's consistent. The hotel covenant's important because it not it doesn't just talk about the the use of the units, but what's what's important to have this caliber of a facility. So it really ties down the associated amenities that would be provided in this. When considering approval or denial, Haynes urged council to consider how the hotel will fit within Mountain Village, both physically on the lot and within the ethos of the community. During public comment, members of the community came down on both sides of the issue. Andrew Butler is in support. This can really be an asset to the town for years to come. It'll stimulate visitation. It'll generate significant tax revenue, deliver millions of dollars worth of public improvements, funded by, installed by, operated and maintained by the project. These are all critical community benefits the town's identified. We're going to be activating this plaza on the north end of the village. Cameron Kelly still has concerns about the mass and scale and also worries about the process and past contention with developers. We still don't have so many answers, even today. It is the same thing every time. Town council was also split, with several members of council suggesting denial of the project, others proposing approval. Mountain Village Mayor Leila Benitez is somewhere in the middle. I am really impressed with how this team listened. Like, to us, how they worked with our staff. I think that's amazing. Um, Do I think we're all the way there, though? No. In the end, council chose to continue the conversation regarding the hotel development rather than approving or denying. Mountain Village Town Council will discuss the hotel application at its meeting on August 17th. With the discussion taking place after Mountain Village's election, a new town council will review the hotel application at that time. Boaters have rejoiced. This spring's ample snowpack and heavy spring rain have brought water rushing into area rivers, including the Lower Dolores, which runs through the desert to the northwest of Telluride. But more and more, this ample snowmelt is an exception, and not the norm. Most years, the Dolores River, its flows controlled by the McPhee Dam, more or less runs dry. What's it like to witness the Dolores in a dry year? And what can an ailing river teach us about our relation to the natural world? Those were the questions of Colorado-based filmmaker Cody Perry when he set out to make the documentary River of Sorrows. The film is now premiering across the state of Colorado with a stop in Telluride on Thursday. Perry caught up with KOTO's Gavin McGough before his visit. He begins reflecting on the background of the new film. The vast majority of people that see the river, you know, are seeing it during these years like this one. And this is an epic year where people are floating on the river and, uh, and then there's these times of years where no one sees it. So we wanted to show what it was like on those years. And it was an uncommon adventure led by two characters, um, Brett Davis, who's an outdoor education instructor at Fort Lewis, and Annie Bustle, who is an artist and works at Alpaca Raft in Mancus, Colorado. And uh, what what do these two boaters find? What's it like to to try to go down a river when there's not enough water to 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 do it? You know, when they went on this experience and saw what the river's like for their first time at these low flows, they were really stunned by the lack of wildlife. There was there you know there was no waterborne insects. There was no fish eating waterfowl. Um, there was you know there was just associated with the river there was none of the things that you would typically see and 
on the flip side of that, there was also no people. So it was this odd kind of dichotomy or juxtaposition between, you know, the solitude and the epicness of the canyon around you, all this landscape, all this wildness. But the river itself was, is very muted. I think there's, the main experience can be summed up by the, the complete, like, mismatch of that on those off years. The river doesn't seem healthy. It doesn't seem normal. So tell us a little about this river, the Dolores. Everyone speaks of its incredible beauty. What else makes it uh, a unique character for your work? It's a microcosm of how climate change is impacting the Colorado River Basin. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, it supports traditional, supports traditional Western water use. And um, it's, it's an over-allocated river. It uh, goes through all these different political boundaries. There's all these different classic stakeholders around the resource. And it's one of those places where you can start to see um, that, you know, we ask too much of this river. It works really hard supporting the communities it supports. But um, there's a consequence to that. And I think the river really, um, you know, unflinchingly portrays that. And you're currently on a statewide Protect the Dolores film tour to kind of share this story with communities and help advocate for river protection measures. What has this tour been like and what sort of conversations have you been encountering across the state? Everybody wants to tell their Dolores story. Uh-huh. Everybody wants to share their their special moment, their place. It's It's like when we're all done, people stay to approach you and tell you about their story. This is a complex topic. You know, the Dolores, the major injustice is like that's very visible is the river is highly impacted. How do we restore water when all the water's already been giving away? Like, how do we protect it, you know? And it's just, it's outstanding to see the public having a much higher level of knowledge about the Dolores, how it works and how we can protect it. Well, Cody, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And thank you so much for bringing this film to Telluride. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. That was Cody Perry, the filmmaker behind River of Sorrows, speaking with KOTO's Gavin McGough. The film will screen this Thursday, June 22nd at the Wilkinson Public Library as part of a statewide tour. Doors are at 6.30 p.m. Perry will be in attendance to take audience questions. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is investigating an outbreak of Cyclospora on the Western Slope and the Telluride region. Cyclospora is a parasite that infects the small intestine. Between May 1st and June 15th, CDPHE had reported 62 cases of the parasite in Colorado. Traditionally, there are only 63 cases in the state per year. CDPHE, in collaboration with the Ure County Public Health Department, have identified 45 of the cases associated with a likely outbreak at the Tacos Del Nar restaurant in Ridgeway. Cyclospora outbreaks are typically the result of contaminated product, usually produce, in the supply chain rather than a result of food handling or cleaning practices at a restaurant. Tacos Del Nar is partnering with the CDPHE on the investigation.
Cyclospora symptoms typically materialize within a week or two, with symptoms including watery diarrhea with frequent, sometimes severe bowel movements. Other common symptoms include loss of appetite, weight loss, stomach cramps and pain, bloating, increased gas, nausea, fatigue, vomiting, body aches, headache, fever, and other flu-like symptoms. The parasite does not typically spread from person to person. Anyone who dined at Tacos Del Nar since May 1, 2023 and experienced or is still experiencing symptoms should contact a healthcare provider to get tested for cyclospora. Spring and summer means babies. Whether it's a precious new pup, a curious kitten, or the natural cycle of wildlife having babies across the state. While elk calves, deer, and pronghorn fawns are adorable to look at, it's also everyone's responsibility to keep them safe. And that means leaving them alone. This year, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is urging people who come across baby animals to leave them be. CPW officials note adult animals will often leave their young hidden while they forage for food. In turn, CPW says that leads to an increased number of reported rescued or abandoned animals. Officials acknowledge the reports come with good intentions, but often result in people kidnapping young and bringing them to CPW offices. CPW notes handling or removing a young animal from its habitat will often cause more harm than good. Animal mothers can also pose a physical threat to humans. Deer, elk, and moose can become aggressive to defend their calves and fawns. CPW also reminds that feeding wildlife is always illegal. The Colorado Supreme Court struck down a state law on Tuesday that gave victims of past childhood sexual abuse their day in court. The so-called Child Sexual Abuse Accountability Act took effect last year. It created a three-year window for adults to sue over alleged abuse they experienced as children dating back to the 1960s. The court ruled the law violates the Colorado Constitution. Ongoing lawsuits that were brought under the law will likely not move forward. Lawmakers who created the act are considering other ways to provide remedies for claims blocked by the statute of limitations. The Colorado State Legislature passed a measure this session to prohibit state and local governments within Colorado from participating in the immigration detention industry as a business partner or subcontractor. While this new law may provide a measure of relief to undocumented or temporarily authorized immigrants residing in the state, lawmakers elsewhere are challenging hard-won gains. That includes Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, a federal program that gives temporary legal protection to some undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. The Boulder-based Modus Theater's Undocu America Monologue Project shares the personal stories of immigrants with the wider community. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young spoke with two members of the theater troupe about their experience of being DACA recipients. Armando Peniche says even in the best of circumstances, living with DACA forces one to plan one's life in two-year increments. DACA is a renewable um, permit, but you have to renew it every two years, right? So me, Armando, as a DACA recipient, I can't plan to buy a house in five years from now, right? Because I don't know what I'll be in two years. Or school, right? Kind of like, okay, I'm going to go to a four-year school, but you don't even know if you're going to be here for two more years, right? 
So it's a huge challenge being in that, like living your life two years at a time while also trying to maintain a perfect life. You know, like we all, of course, should strive to stay out of trouble, live a perfect life. People make mistakes, you know, it's human nature, you know, but in, and it's just a lot of pressure at times for people like, okay, like you have to be a model citizen, live a perfect life, or in two years you might be gone, you know, and it, it takes a toll mentally, physically, emotionally. One of those elements of uncertainty is the pending ruling in a court case heard by U.S. District Judge Andrew Hainan. Modus Theater monologist Victor Galvan says this particular judge has a history of ruling against expanding legal protections for immigrants. Judge Hainan, he has been a, a tool and a, a strong arm for the conservatives in this country to move against executive orders like Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals and uh, DAPA, which is the same program but for parents, and immediately um, being challenged in the courts. I mean, DACA has been challenged in the courts by this specific judge many a times, and now the higher courts have said we're going to let the, the lower courts rule. So it's now in his, his playing field, and he's warming up to end this program. And I don't want to set fear in my community, but I also want to make sure that we're, we're pivoting when we need to and preparing ourselves. So um, people need to be prepared. Um, if this program ends, what this may mean for their life. Action from Congress could provide legal protections for the DACA program and a counterweight to judicial rulings. But Congress has failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform measures for around three decades. Victor Galvan says both political parties have used the tenuous circumstances of millions of undocumented immigrants for political gains. And speaking directly to community members may be a more effective option for shifting the narrative. We are given hopes by the progressives, um, threatened by the conservatives, and then they pressure each other with those notions in order to make political gains with their bases. And so I think there's a lot of people who are having their heartstrings plucked in one way or the other for the, the gains of one political party or both. And so we really need to understand each other here. I'm not reaching out to my community because they know what it's like to live in my shoes. They know. I'm reaching out to the other side for those of, uh, the, those of our community that either refuse to learn or have no experiences that put them in that position to learn what it's like to be an immigrant in this country. And so this is why we do our monologues, why we perform across the state and now internationally, because we want to help people understand what it's like to live this kind of life, um, help people understand that we are so much more alike than we are different and that we're striving for the same thing. We want to survive. We want to thrive. We want to build community. And I think there's these very pivotal moments in our monologues where people's eyes open and they realize how wrong they were to judge someone for the decisions that they made, how incredibly similar our paths are and how our humanity coincides in that way, that we want a better life for our community, for our friends, for our family, and that we're we're all wrestling with this political football that is not working for any of us. So I am reaching out to those folks who are cheering on our conservative counterparts 
who want to see us gone because I know that I'm living in the same neighborhood where we have crappy water quality. We're, we're living in the same communities where we're breathing the bad air, where our taxes are not being used for good, where our, we're being pitted against each other for jobs, where we're not being paid enough. All of these problems are so universal to our bases. And for some reason, someone's whispering in their ear and turning them against their neighbor. And we need to fight that. I know that everyone that has um, worked against us can find common ground with us. And that's all we want is common ground to work for progress. Armando Peniche, anything that you would like to add or what you would like to say while we're in front of these microphones? No, yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having us. And second of all, to all our listeners, thank you for being here and listening to this program because that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Like taking the time to listen, to listen to someone's other story without judgment, just just being able to take it, right? And I want to add that, you know, in this beautiful world of ours, you know, humans have only been here for what a few thousand years or depending on your belief, right? But just I want to talk to your heart and be like, how, how do you want to be remembered? Right. Immigration is should be a right. You know, th before we had borders, people were free to migrate for better opportunities. Right. And when you have a group of people who are just trying to live, trying to provide for their children, for their families, you know, uh, many of us here in the U.S., many U.S. citizens, you know, you don't you can't, you know, experience what that is like because that's not the cards that you were dealt. But I'm sure you can relate to an experience of, you know, what hunger feels like what uh, no opportunity feels like, you know, a bad day. So just reach out to humanity, to your hearts. And, you know, like Victor said, we're trying to build community. That was Armando Peniche, Partnerships and Project Manager for Modus Theater, and monologuist Victor Galvan. For KGNU, I'm Shannon Young. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-40s. Thursday should be sunny during the day and mostly clear at night. The high is near 75 degrees with a low around 45. Friday, expect sunny skies with a high around 70 degrees. Friday night should be clear with a low around 40. This has been the news for Wednesday, June 21st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. The Town of Telluride and Servitas LLC are hosting the first of several community outreach events on the Canyonlands Towerhouse Public-Private Partnership Affordable Housing Project at the Wilkinson Public Library on Thursday, June 29th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. Please join us at this open house to learn more about the site, the community's housing needs, and provide input on this exciting opportunity. Refreshments provided. For more information about the project or the open house, please visit EngageTelluride.org. San Miguel County Compliance for Deed-Restricted Homeowners begins June 21st. The compliance checks will be phased through the county's various developments as follows. San Bernardo and Aldosaro, June 21st through July 12th. Lawson Hill, Two Rivers and Ilium, July 13th through August 3rd. And Pinion Park Norwood, August 4th, through August 25th. Homeowners can fill out the form online at smrha.org. For questions, please contact Courtney at C-O-U-R 
T-N-E-Y, at smrha.org or 970-728-3034. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.